our mission, and we choose to accept it, is zero injuries and zero environmental impact. A healthy workforce and environment is key to our nation's continued success. The Mission Zero podcast is a deep dive with the industry's top experts into the health, safety and environmental aspects of today's workplace. Our mission is to be a platform for new ideas and strategies that, when implemented, will improve our safety, our environment and how we govern out business. We are making the world safer and we're going to have fun doing it. I'm at the NOV Tower in Houston, Texas, talking with the Vice President of Renewable Energy, Ed Whitnell. Welcome, Ed. How are you? I'm doing well, Jeff. How are you? Wonderful, sir. I uh, thank you very much. Uh, you know, my third conversation on this podcast was with, with David Reed, and he had mentioned some of the renewable uh, things that were going on at NOV, and I was like, well, sooner or later we need to take a little bit uh, deeper dive into that. And you know that you know my podcast is an HSC podcast, and that last one is environmental, and that absolutely applies to renewables. So uh, before we dive in, I just wanted you to maybe give us a little bit about your history. What brought you to be in, in the position you're in today? Well, it's been a long journey. <laughs> um, so I am third generation oil field. And uh, when I graduated from school, I said that I would move anywhere in the world except Houston, Texas. And I promptly took a job with Transocean in Houston. Um, stayed with them about five years. Uh, that that was a great experience. Taught me a lot. Um during one of the downturns, uh, was laid off, uh, but came to work for, at the time, Varco. Um, spent the next couple of years doing uh, QHSE, believe oh, it or not. Okay, great. <clears throat> Mostly because I had been such a pain in the neck for them that they wanted to put me in a role where people couldn't be as much of a pain in the neck as I had been. But moved from there into uh, our aftermarket business, uh, doing field service and repair. Um, eventually kind of looked after that business for us for the Western Hemisphere. And then moved over into what we call uh, operations, which is really sort of sales and manufacturing. Did that for the last 10 years. Um, worked here in the U.S., worked in Brazil, worked in the Middle East most recently. We spent four years in, in Dubai. And then... Uh, got the opportunity to come over here and lead the the nascent renewables part of our business, and that was about ten months ago. Okay, and how, how long have you been in this position currently? Did you say about ten months? Ten months. Okay, that's what you meant by that. Okay, uh, and where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Midland or where? Uh, no, Beaumont boy. Okay, okay, Beaumont boy. So, so fourth generation. That that. You know, I, that leads it back to the beginning, right? I mean, that's got to be. Well, third generation. Okay. Third generation. My uh, my grandfather worked for uh, United Gas. Okay. So all up and down the Gulf Coast. My mother worked for uh, Mobile Chemical. My uncle worked for Aramco. And they uh, they both counseled me against getting into the industry, so I promptly took that, that counsel into <laughs> why, why did they do that? What was it? Because the up and downs? Mostly because of the up and downs. I mean, yeah. they had grown up with it. They had lived through it. Um, you know, my, my uncle did not start as an oil man. He actually started out as a rocket scientist uh, working on the Apollo stuff and uh, just just could not avoid the siren song. And I ran into the same problem. You know, um, my first uh, – coming out of college, it was a while before I started touching the oil field. And I tell people when I come to talk to them – 
you got to be specific about what you're doing because I, I've never worked in the oil field. I, I tell them that up front. I'm not connected. All I'm doing is trying to create products for workers. Uh, so I had to learn a lot about them. <clears throat> but uh, I traveled mostly internationally. And when the first uh, downturn I experienced was, uh, you know, I'd come back to the U.S. and I'd hear my counterparts here talking about the terrible downturn. And I'm sitting here going, well, I don't, I'm not seeing that, you know, and I realized, you know, you dig deeper and you realize that the U.S.'s downturns were significantly worse than other countries and globally. Like it is, it is a severe feast and famine of an industry here. And it, it is tough because you guys are losing really quality people probably on each downturn, right? We do. I mean, it's, it's one of the Achilles heels of, of our industry is uh, because we ultimately provide a commodity as that commodity goes up and goes down. We either have to make more of it or we're making too much of it. Yeah. And, and therefore people that, get impacted by that. That's the free market though. It is. It's, it's, it's the risk of the free market. You can go through the roof, but you can also go through the floor, I guess as well. When, when I got laid off, I, I spent a long time and, and bear in mind, I was 20, 28 years old, right? I was still young. Um, I was engaged, but effectively, no, I wasn't engaged. I was I was married at that point. Mm. But I, I spent several weeks thinking about: Do I want to stay in this industry, or do I want to go do something else? Because I was thinking about starting my own business. And, and at the end of the day, um, because of where I was in in my life with a a new bride, she was pregnant, new house. I was buying my wife a new car. <laughs> Which downturn was this? Uh, this was 2001. Okay. 2002. Okay. Yeah. Uh, between the, just sort of the risk profile that I was tolerating then and, um, and just the experience that, that five years in the industry had afforded me, I'd already spent two years of those five years living overseas as a young engineer. Okay. Um, very few industries afford that type of opportunity, uh, afford those types of, of chances to go out and, and learn. I mean, I, I remember my first project. I had been on the project for three days when the project manager brought me into his office and said he had to leave and I needed to finish doing what he had been doing. <laughs> I was I was so green. I was wet behind the ears. Yeah. <laughs> didn't, didn't know up from down, man. But yeah. that was just kind of that was the industry at the time. There weren't enough people, and the ones they hired, they got opportunities thrown at them. So uh, you had your degree in, in petroleum engineering or? Mechanical engineering. Mechanical engineering. Yeah. Where'd you go to school? A&M. Okay, you're an Aggie. I'm a Red Raider. Please don't throw me out of this building. I, you know, the guy <laughs> three offices down, Red Raider. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, there are a lot of Red Raiders and a lot of Aggies and a few Longhorns. Look, the Aggie, uh, <laughs> obviously, you know, and, and I'm sure it's the whole engineering department, but the um, the petroleum engineering department is something else in Texas A&M. I mean, I, I love the, the back and forth between Texas Tech or any of the colleges, really. I, I'd always love that, but I never – I mean, I have a healthy respect for Texas A&M, a very healthy respect, but it's always fun to take jabs, and which is a reason I despised it when the uh, the football alliance took uh, realignment took place. Mm -hmm. I despise that. I get it. I know why A&M did it. It made sense for them, but, man, that – I miss that um, inter-office friendship poking when the game week came about. Mm -hmm. That was always fun. and It was. What, what I liked as a Red Raider about Texas Tech is it, 
eight times out of ten, A and M was the better team, but somehow we'd find a way to beat you guys. <laughs> and I'm sure it was infuriating, but it was it was the A and M was would always be the better team, and we'd still find a way to win. And it was just ridiculous. The one time I drove all the way up to Lubbock, um, some friends of mine uh, were were Raiders, mm-hmm. and and they were on the the hospitality team for the oh, yeah. for the football team. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And so they they got us some tickets. So me and a buddy drove up there, and and that long drive. And I, I remember we lost that game on a field goal with about a 90 mile an hour wind blowing at the kicker's back. And I swear he must've kicked a 174 yard <laughs> goal. Yeah. And, and it, and it even hit the crossbar. Like it was, oh, I think oh I remember this goodness. game. I think I remember this game. I, it was, it was heartbreaking, man. Yeah. I think, I think I remember that game. Well, I hope they were, I hope they were good to you. I hate, uh, <laughs> they were. some people take it a little too far. They, uh, they, they become, you know, uh, terrible to treat other people. But my time in college station has always been, well treated and people were really good to me, but uh, you know I, I won't spend too much time on football. But boy, you guys are looking good for a title run this year. I are you man? I I, I would like to think we are. I, I thought we were last year. It's kind of that time. It's it's it's, it's time. Like hey, I think Jimbo's so. doing a great job with recruiting. Yeah, we, we certainly uh, seem to have the pieces mm-hmm. to to at least be able to challenge. Um, you know, beating Alabama one time every ten years is not really. Not really satisfying enough. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, again, to be fair, though, nobody beats Alabama more than that. I mean, that's just, you know, I, I grew up in Georgia. Okay. And uh, <clears throat> so, you know, all this time around, obviously, everybody back home was just giddy about the Bulldogs. But I kind of left that behind me, so I'm not really into the Bulldogs anymore. The only time I pulled for them really was when Miko Hardman played. If you mm-hmm. remember him, he plays with the Chiefs. Yeah. I, I grew up with his father. And I played oh, okay. with his father and uncle, so I was, it felt like family was out there playing at that point. So, but uh, let me get, let me get back to the the subjects at hand. Instead of uh, we could talk about football all day, I'm <laughs> I'm sure. But uh, so mechanical engineering, you're out there in the field. Um, so you said you, you started out doing typical engineering work in the oil field, and then you moved to safety. I did. I uh, I started out doing uh, at the time Transocean had an engineering training program, mm-hmm. and there were a bunch of us that were in the program. And then we were we were kind of the first. There's about a two or three year period where Transocean started hiring, and um, all but probably two of the guys that were in that EIT program got got kicked out, and we got converted into project engineers, and and we went out and built the the original Enterprise uh, class rigs. Okay. So it was sort of a baptism by fire, but in in all the best ways. I mean, they there were lots of senior guys around to <laughs> answer our questions and help us along. Uh, but it was it was a good way to get into the industry. In fact, I was I was telling somebody last week that you know, there's just really is no better way to to learn about a drilling rig than to than to go build a few. Yeah. Uh, it's a it's a great way to really understand kind of system by system how they come together. Yeah. I begged my way onto a couple of them. <laughs> Uh, because I was, I want to see this, right? I'm making all, I'm making gloves for these people. I'd like to see it, but, uh, but yeah, what I tell people back home, the complexity of the oil and gas industry is staggering. I mean, you think it's, you think it's just put a drill down into the world and the oil comes popping up, and I think that's how it is. And I'm like, no, it is an incredibly in, engineering intensive project. And um, I, I interviewed one of the late, one of the people. Uh, going for the railroad commission and mm-hmm. so, like I had to tell her at one, I had to stop and say, look, 
you're talking way over most people's heads here because you're talking, uh, you know, most people listening are not doing this side of the work. They don't understand all this, but it is incredibly complicated. So these people in the oil field, these engineers, these people out there working are brilliant. There's some brilliant people out there, man. There really are. And thankfully yeah. we, we have a, we have quite a few of them here and I've, I've got a, a bunch of them on my team, which yeah. makes it uh, so much better. Where all, where did you work? You said you, uh, in the Middle East and was this when you were doing, uh, projects or was this later on? No, the, the project work that I did with Transocean was, was down in Brazil. Okay. So I did, I did two different sort of trips down there over the span of two years living, living there with a one month break between them. Is that Macae? Um, Macae? Uh, uh, not much. Maybe, maybe one month out of the two years. Oh, okay. About a year of it was in Rio de Janeiro and then, about a month in Maquet, and the rest of the time I was in a place called Angra dos Reis. Oh, that's a new one for me. <laughs> I, there's a, there was an old shipyard there, and we were the, I think we were the second um, project when they reopened. It became a, a Keppel Fells yard. Uh, so we, we went down there and did an amazing project uh, All converting a drilling rig. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they're making a little bit of a comeback as well. Um, seems like the future, you know, the, the offshore looks like they're expecting some 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 growth here. Some of the companies. Yeah, I mean, the the commodity price staying where it is uh, for as long as it is with geopolitical instability where it is, uh, sort of the the chaos meter rising. Yeah, um, you know that that really supports a lot of the what ends up being a higher cost uh, commodity, but often you know, long paybacks because you, yeah. you, you hit such, um, such large fields. How did you end up in QHC? I was realizing I didn't originally answer your question. <laughs> um, so when I came out of the field, I was working in corporate maintenance and in the corporate maintenance group, we, we were really just trying to reduce downtime on, on tools. So we, we took a, and this is sort of pre, uh, data, readily available for everything in the world everywhere. Yeah. So we, we had to do a lot of manual data gathering and, and try to reduce downtime. And in doing that, uh, the top drive um, tended to be uh, one of the, the leading causes of downtime. So I spent a lot of time looking at, you know, what caused that downtime and what could we do differently to reduce it. And, and since most of our top drives came from at the time, Varco now in OV, um, I spent a lot of time with those guys on, on how they could make their product better for us, both in original manufacturing and an overhaul. And uh, I was enough of a, a pain in the rear that when I left Transocean, they actually called and said, hey, do you want a job? And I was like, well, gosh, I'm, I'm available. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out maybe. <laughs> yeah. So it was a great opportunity to kind of carry on some of that work. And it, it set me up to, to help them do some some early things with uh, with QHSE just on even then back then on on how we were measuring ourselves right because yeah. we didn't we didn't really consistently measure ourselves back then yeah I don't think they understand the cost of things too they didn't associate safety problems environmental problems with cost of business at that point yeah I still you know it's funny I still have a rough time getting senior management for companies to associate that cost and I was like, like you're you know, this is you putting everything together because, you know, I've told us in the past, the people that care about the medical bill are over here. The people that care about the insurance are over here. The people that care about downtime are over here. They're not 
getting together and saying, let's put all this together and see what our total cost is. Yeah. One company did, and it was awful. And I said, hmm, that's, it was more than I thought it would be, but I, it was a it was a private one. I can't mention who it was, but it was a company here in town, and it was like, it is a substantial cost. But uh, moving past the, the safety, um, wh- where did you go from there? So from there, I, I w- went into – or that was actually a part of aftermarket, but then I mm. kind of moved into aftermarket operations. Um, and that was with NOV? Or? With – yeah, with actually with Varco for Varco. a short period, and then uh, when when National Oil Well bought Varco, we became NOV. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was within a year or two of of doing that. Um, so I looked after remote support, and then field service, then field service and repair, and then uh, did sort of that scope for for all of the Western Hemisphere. Okay. And now you're the vice president of renewable energy for an oil company, an oil field service company. So uh, most people would think that's a little bit of a, an, uh, an irony, but uh, it's not really, is it? It really isn't, man. I, you know, when when we think about energy, you know, oil and gas make up a significant portion of our energy mix, but but by no means is it the only. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we started looking at renewables. Um, Actually, way back many years ago, um, but before it was it was sort of mandated. Before there was really a, a push to it, mm. just because we we saw so many of the synergies with our offshore work, particularly with with sort of offshore wind. Uh, whether it was this is before floating, but you know fixed offshore wind, so much of what we already did kind of fed into that. And um, you're saying it was an easy transition. For for that part, it was. Uh, we we made an acquisition of Gusto MSC, which was was a an amazing company, really really great uh, great people, great engineers, great products, and and that's a part of our marine and construction group. And so that group looks after offshore wind just as a business. That's already an ongoing enterprise for us. Um, it's well, you and I were talking offline uh, about. Uh, you know the idea that there's really no uh, sensible opinions. There's always the far reaches to both sides, and and, and everything reaches to the end of uh, the political spectrum, no matter what it was. But on the answer of what is the what is the answer to climate change? What is the answer to um, dealing with the energy uh, future? And again, same thing. People jump on. Well, it's it's got to be only oil. Oil's got to be the only thing, or we have to rid ourselves of fossil fuels immediately. Neither is is anywhere near possible, right? In any any world where there's any critical thinking going into into this, there's no there's no there's no world where it says that any of those could take place. So the answer is both. We you know we need both. We need to uh, rely and then continue to improve our technology and efficiencies with uh, fossil fuel extraction. But we also need to start developing other uh, of other of the renewable energies that you you were particularly working on to make them more efficient and to make them more of a contributing factor, right? And so, you know, to me, what I've seen about it, I wrote a you know paper. I, I spoke with Chris Wright at Liberty in depth and uh, talked to some people, and I wrote a uh, two page article on the case for fossil fuels and. That is got to be the way to go about it. So it's impressive that you know NOV has already been what twenty years in, fifteen years in, maybe more than that. Diving in. Well, it was it was probably seven or eight years ago that we that we originally looked at it. Um, 
Oh, I thought okay. I thought I thought you were saying it was longer than that. Like, no, man, no, it was really. This is early on for an oil company. <laughs> we were we were early on for for that particular piece of it, uh-huh. just because again it it made such obvious sense. Yeah. Um, but since then, a lot of our sort of drive to innovate has been brought to bear in in places that that we don't normally play, like. Just personally, for for my group, you know, we're we're focused on uh, on solar, on onshore wind, and sort of non conventional geothermal right now. Mm-hmm. And those are the three priorities. For they are for us right now. Okay, um, we, are, we're also looking at CCUS. Uh, that's a, a big thing for us. We're looking at hydrogen. What is CCUS? Carbon capture, utilization, and okay. sequestration. Okay, but those in particular, hydrogen, my group does a little bit of work with, but. A lot of what uh, what hydrogen centers on the, the the strengths that you need really fit with some uh, within some other parts of our uh, our group. Okay. So we have a different group that that uh, that generally is looking into hydrogen, and similarly with CCUS because really CCUS is at least the the capture piece is is a lot of chemistry focus, mm-hmm. uh, whereas the sequestration is a mix of newer technologies and then more traditional pump it into the ground and monitor it. Gotcha. Um, two, two things I want you to uh, expand upon <clears throat> And for the audience. This is like I said, this isn't an oil field podcast. So there's a lot of people that aren't necessarily directly in this field. Can you explain uh, what NOV is and what type of company NOV is? Cause people listening may think they're all the same, like shell, you know, mm. but you know, NOV is not a driller. NOV is not an operator. So oil field service company. And can you just kind of, give a general definition of what that is? Of course. So I'm speaking about the, um, we call it upstream operators, we call it EMP, mm-hmm. but the the drilling side of the business, what what has to happen to find the oil, um, that's that's the part that, that I have historically touched. Mm-hmm. Now, NOB touches sort of that piece as well as um, all the way down to production through, through our CAPS group. But um, if you think of oil companies as sort of, the operators, kind of tier one within our industry. They're the ones that actually go out and and look to produce oil and sell oil. Um, then they're supported by um, all kinds of service companies. I'm just going to start with a group and call them the drillers. So they would, an operator, an oil company would go and contract a driller. Um, they may contract some outside services like directional drilling, um, cementing, that sort of thing. And that would come from companies like Slumberger, Halliburton, Baker, NOV. Um, NOV also supplies a lot of the, the drilling equipment that's used on those those rigs to actually go out and find the oil. Um, and then there's a there's a whole host of of companies that then support um, either those drilling operations directly, um, providing logistics for them, providing even up to and including say food to the rigs, right? Oh wow. Um, and then for, for us, obviously, uh, as an equipment supplier, as a service supplier, then there's a, a group of companies that support us within our supply chain for us to be able to produce drilling equipment or produce uh, drill pipe to produce frack spreads, that sort of thing. Okay, so it's, there's a lot of tentacles, but in, in, in all, it's, it's an oil field service company and one of the largest in the world. Yeah. Uh, I would imagine in 50, 60 countries, something like that. I don't actually know what our, our country count is, but it um, – it's large. I've seen. I have been on an NOV location in I think probably about twelve or thirteen different countries. I, you know, I tell them I said, you know, the farthest reaching being Tierra del Fuego. 
I was at your yeah. I was at your site down there one time years ago. So I was the tip of the work, like the end of Chile and Argentina. But um, now back to the uh, renewables. Um, so you named off five things. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of like to expand a little bit on each one of them. The first one was wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, where are you? Where is NOV in the uh, in the process of that? Are y'all manufacturing the windmills? Are you operating them? No. So not really our our. Uh our sweet spot there. Mm-hmm. Um, we're doing a, a number of things, right? When we think about offshore wind, the Marine Construction Group, the Gusto MSC Group, they were naval architects and equipment designers. So um, them, along with other parts of that that group, that's why it made such a good synergy, have a, a long history of things like uh, heavy lift cranes, jacking systems. Gusto MSC as a naval architect has hull designs. So mm-hmm. things like lift vessels for installing offshore wind turbines, whether fixed or floating. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's a part of the market that we participate in and participate in well. Okay, so you're on the design and engineering side. Absolutely. Okay, gotcha. Uh, we also uh, can turn around and help manufacture those. Um, we had a, some press releases recently about some of our uh, floating offshore wind uh, supports, which, again, unsurprisingly look a lot like, a, like an offshore – Vessel. That, I think most people that wouldn't know that they were floating. I, I well, think most people know that it that exists. It's it's um, the the floating is really interesting because if you if you get a foundation that's large enough, um, you can you can make your your turbine that much higher. Mm-hmm. And and generally speaking, the higher you are, the more capacity factor you get, which just means the more energy you can produce. And the problem, uh, <clears throat> I guess, the unsolved problem of of wind is. And you feel please correct me because this is the public information that you hear. Wind is that you can't store the energy; it has to be used immediately. Is that is that correct and and uh, the correct thinking there? Yeah, I mean with with really any any energy source, right? Mm-hmm. You you have to use it when it's there, uh, unless you have a storage system, and that can be uh, you know it can be a battery. There there are lots of people that are looking at clever ideas on on how you can store energy over a longer duration than, than a battery. Mm-hmm. Cause batteries aren't, um, at least from a say utility scale standpoint, right? Batteries aren't great for really providing energy over a long duration. Batteries are good at, at dumping energy over a short duration. They're so, also not good environmentally long-term, right? Well, I think it depends on the battery. I mean, there are lots of different battery chemistries, um, Again, there are some batteries that that aren't the batteries that that you and I are thinking of, like a lithium ion battery. Yeah. But you can look at things like a pumped hydro, which mm-hmm. is a, a fancy way of saying a water wheel. Okay. <laughs> as a as a species, uh, the human race has been using pumped hydro for thousands of years, yeah. and and there are some really clever pumped hydro ideas now. Traditionally, pumped hydro requires a certain geography. You've got to have a body of water up here, something where you can take that water and get it down, somehow get it back up. But there's some really clever things being done in that space uh, that that actually would act as long duration batteries. Yeah. So not not traditional batteries. Thinking about lithium ion, rare earth metals, and all the the questions that go around that. Uh, well, one interesting one uh, I really want to hear about it are the ones that are probably more 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 in the news. The ones aren't as you know out there in front of our faces, like you know uh, wind energy and solar energy, mm-hmm. uh, geothermal. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you give the audience a little bit of an overview of you know? I think 
maybe Canada? Is that where y'all doing some of that or somewhere? We we actually do it all over the world. Okay. Um, if you think about geothermal drilling, it's very, very similar to oil drilling, right? Uh, the, the difference tends to be geography. Uh, so traditionally, you would be around a, a fault line. You would be around a, a place mm-hmm. with geysers. Because really what you're doing is you're looking for, for heat. You're looking for heat and pressure, yeah. right? So it's always been geography limited. Now, again, people are working on how to make that not so geography limited. We we fall into that camp. But just serving the traditional geothermal market, uh, NOV makes the rigs that are used for that. We make the bits that are used for that. We make the drill pipe that's used for that. Um we make completion tools that are used for that. We've 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 served the geothermal industry for fifty years. Is it is it promising to to grow as a as an energy source? Geothermal is really interesting um, because it tends to be less intermittent than say solar and wind. Um, you know, when we look at it from a cost basis, we have a way of levelizing that. But at the end of the day. People want energy effectively 24-7 today, right? Yeah. So having it only available intermittently is is a challenge. And so we, we look at how do we get around that. Geothermal tends to not have that same challenge because you can uh, have a closed-loop system or even an open-loop system where, where you're taking hot water, hot steam, uh, running it through a couple of turbines and, uh, and producing electricity effectively 24-7. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, so y'all are doing that all over the world. I thought I thought Canada was Canada is Canada not an important one there, or is it? It, it is. Um, yeah. We're doing just as a company. We support geothermal everywhere it is. Um, how does that stack up on the how environmentally friendly is it considered? You know, cleaner is it considered intensive? Once it's producing, it's it's effectively carbon free. I mean, obviously, you know, we get into the question of what's what do we consider in tier three emissions, yeah. which is, is, is very gray. And, yeah. and that's, that's a problem, right? But um, once it is up and running, the plant really doesn't have a significant carbon footprint. Nice. And uh, <clears throat> other one, you mentioned hydrogen. Um, how are we, how are you guys, what are you doing with that? How was how hydrogen captured? How is it used, and and what what is the potential for hydrogen in in the future? Oh, that's that is the, that's the ten billion dollar question, and and I will I will I will preface this um, for your comment section by saying I am not a hydrogen expert. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right. Um, but there are uh, there the color hydrogens. Uh, you know, gray hydrogen is is made from natural gas and. Uh, blue hydrogen is also made from natural gas, but it's it's done differently. Green hydrogen, you know, the the energy to catalyze the hydrogen comes from a renewable source. And uh, I heard recently, I haven't checked it, uh, but I've heard that pink hydrogen is actually hydrogen that's made with nuclear power. Uh, I've I've heard purple hydrogen and gold hydrogen, <laughs> all these different hydrogens, and 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 hydrogen certainly is is an interesting. Um, an interesting energy source. I think there there is lots of potential, but it is it is not the answer today. Yeah, it's. I'm not going to call it fusion. So we're in infancy on this one. We really are. I mean, there there. In a, in, a, in addition to the fact that right now it takes a lot of energy to to make hydrogen, mm-hmm. um, 
transporting hydrogen, moving hydrogen around yeah. is problematic. Uh, there are lots of people that, that think we can reuse existing infrastructure and we can to an extent. Um, the, the problem is, is we can only use it if we dilute it in natural gas. Mm -hmm. So we have to move it in natural gas if we want to use the existing pipelines, but you can only use it up to ballpark kind of 18 to 20% dilution in, in natural gas. But then you still have to separate it from natural gas to the other end, which takes energy. Yeah. And so you're, you're effectively reducing the, the net energy value in the, in the hydrogen when you have to do that. Yeah, I, I interviewed – he's one of my good friends, Tim Lowry from um, ACT, Applied mm -hmm. Cryotechnologies. I think they're – I think I recall him saying that they're making some of those too or getting getting requests for some of that stuff. And, it, uh, you know, I had to – now that you said that, I had to ask him a little bit about the hydrogen to, uh, to see if what he's doing, see who's demand, what the demand is for that because, you know, anything new is interesting. I'm um, <clears throat> really going to look into the, the nuclear one, though. That is That is – I got to find out what that even is. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty different. Nuclear. I mean, there's a, there's obviously a, a generally accepted view of nuclear. And, and a lot of that is related to the things that hit the news. Um, 30, 40 years ago. Well, yeah. Three mile Island and Chernobyl and, and Fukushima, um, which are all terrible tragedies. Right. But the, the technology around those pressure water reactors um, bears no resemblance to the technology that, that we're looking at with sort of small modular reactors and the, the, the micro modular reactors um, the, the, those reactors, because of how they're built, because of the, the way they're fueled, you know, even in a runaway reaction, no human intervention is, is needed and you walk away from it you come back, two years later when it cools down. Yeah. So it's, it's very, very different from sort of the, the nuclear promise of the fifties where every house is going to be powered by a nuclear powered toaster. Right. <laughs> yeah. I never, I never understood, you know, obviously that reputation out there, but uh, it takes a pretty significant, um, you know, natural disaster to, to overcome a nuclear power plant. And that's what you had in Japan, right? You know, we have, the Southwest United States, and I, I, there's no significant threat of anything there. They don't. They have floods, but they're small. They ha they don't have uh, tornadoes. They don't have hurricanes, and they don't have earthquakes. So I don't understand why we couldn't find a way to build proper nuclear plants there. And you know, because it's environmentally friendly for the most part, right? People don't realize that. I mean, it's a pretty clean energy, and, and it's very safe energy. It is, again, once the plant is built, right, the, the carbon footprint of that facility is, is almost zero. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, when you think about non-intermittent sources, nuclear is the answer in terms of baseload long-term. Yeah. For sure. You think we'll ever get there? I do. Okay. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely bullish on, okay. on nuclear, but, you know, it kind of gets to... Um, and, and I, I wanted to say thank you for not using energy transition when we were when we were starting because <laughs> because words matter and yeah. even though today there is a, a sort of a, a generally accepted um, definition around energy transition and what it really means is not energy transition but it means energy sources that aren't kill oil <laughs> well, that's what it means you, you, you can you can go there yeah but. 
it's um, it's really an energy expansion, and, and I, I shamelessly steal that from uh, a gentleman at EW, EWTC's annual meeting where where he threw that out there. And and unfortunately, I think that just practically speaking, the ship has sailed, and energy transition is what we're stuck with. But yeah. but it's not really a transition; it's it's an expansion. And yeah. and whether or not you agree with the the climate science, there is a belief that lowering carbon emissions is, is ultimately going to be good for the planet. And, and people are making investing decisions that way. So as we look at these other energy sources, it really comes down to what are we willing to pay for the energy that we want? You know, a couple of th- a couple of things you hit on there. This are things I wrote about, and one in particular. <clears throat> you know, it, it's not all technical to me. It's a little bit. It's a little bit more than that in some cases. And one thing that I spoke about that hit home with me was energy poverty. And uh, mm. who are we to say that these countries, you know, that can't go out there and and and, and provide themselves cheap energy as well? We built our world on cheap energy. We built this amazing, like all the Western world built this world on cheap energy. China built their world on cheap energy. And every single uh, aspect of humanity that gets better, gets better in congruence with the availability of cheap energy. And they are preventing some of these countries. And, and, you know, my main focus is on Africa because it's such a big place with so many people. And, you know, one thing I wrote about women there spend an average of two to three hours a day just trying to find clean water. Imagine, imagine if they could, uh, those same women were participating in the spear of ideas. If they were being educated and, 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 and all these ideas would come from them, from new different people, and we could solve problems much easier. And, you know, the, you know, the energy transition, you know, it sounded like you were saying that oil really won't go away. The, it's just the increased use of energy will come from different sources. Is that what you were saying or did I mishear you there? Well, I, I honestly didn't didn't mean to imply a position about it. I'll, I'll give you my position. Um, Please. Petroleum is not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, petroleum is not going anywhere in the energy mix for a long while. In fact, um, again, you, you and I had this discussion before we started, but if we really believe that the environment is what's driving or, or the environment should be informing our investment decisions in energy, then then we should be replacing right now. We should be replacing coal-fired power plants with um, gas-fired mm-hmm. generators in the same locations, and and you'll have a significant forty to sixty percent reduction in in CO two emissions just from doing that. E- even though I believe nuclear is long term solution, that right there has a significant impact on the environment, reduces carbon emissions. But that means we need more gas. Thankfully, we're we're in a place where Tons our industry can provide that gas. Yeah. And and you know when we think about today and the measure of chaos and what's going on with with Russia being aggressive uh, <laughs> against the Ukraine, um, we can not only provide that gas, we can provide that gas here. Yeah. On our own soil. Um, ship, and and ship it over. Ship it to them ship it to our own power plants. Um, but then as we talk about that as the energy mix, you know, petroleum is still not going anywhere because your laptop and 
half of our clothing, the paint, the 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 carpet in this room. <laughs> it's much harder to find something that wasn't produced <laughs> in by petroleum at some point than it is to find something that is. I mean, it's you can't find anything that petroleum didn't touch. It had touched everything just about. And uh, you know, <clears throat> I know I'm interviewing you in this podcast, but uh, I have an, I have a pretty strong opinion on that too about. Uh, you know where we're going as far as far as the climate change. I do happen to believe that uh, carbon dioxide emissions do affect the climate and, and the temperature. However, my opinion on you know, and I did you know for my you know essay I wrote on it, I did an enormous amount of research, and the conclusion I came to was really we don't know how much, right? There's no measure of how much, and and. Uh, to hell with worrying about what happened in the past. How are we preparing for the future? And to me, you know, all the all the scenarios do not do not factor in mitigation whatsoever. I guess they just think people are going to sit on Miami and just the water is just going to surge in in a, in a few seconds and they can't survive. It's like you know, people have been doing this for all of humanity. You know, if you go to Egypt, half of Alexandria is underwater from when the days of Alexander and things change on its own without, without any sort of climate, but the climate was increasing before we were seeing, you know, a warming that was happening pre-industrial age at a certain rate. And what we really need to do instead of uh, whining about what happened in the past or, or, or any of that, we need to focus on the future. The future says, okay, we're, we're, we might as well get used to the fact that we're going to see a temperature rise. Who cares what the blame of it is instead of, trying to fight it or taking some drastic measures that destroys our economy because if the United States were to quit oil and gas right now in 13 years the world would have completely soaked up all that uh, that we that were missed out and it would be at the same level again plus we would have poverty all over this country right and so the the idea is to pump money to in my opinion is to pump as much money into technology just just pump it into technology and mitigation because these countries that still suffer losses from natural disasters do so because they haven't had the benefit of infrastructure powered by cheap energy, right? So they can protect themselves. Um, you know, natural disasters don't, you know, we, we, we measure natural disasters in dollars now, not people, because there's so few people that die in natural disasters compared to what it used to. I mean, we've, we, in oil and gas did that. Cheap energy did that. But my thing is that we've got to figure out how to remove carbon dioxide from the air. Now, um, there's a guy, I can't remember his name. He was on Joe Rogan recently, and he is a brilliant scientist. This technology already exists. It just isn't, it isn't big enough and it isn't cheap enough to be used. But in 20 years, it might be. And um, so I wanted to lead that conversation into the last thing you talked about was carbon capture i do want you to talk about that because I, I even i don't understand that so i'd like to can you explain what you're doing there if you don't mind uh, unfortunately like hydrogen this really uh, is sort of outside of my bailiwick mm -hmm. um i could go next door and grab a gentleman who who lives in that world <laughs> oh yeah but um i i can i can give you high level and again i preface it with protecting your comments. When, when people tell me I'm wrong, I probably am. <laughs> they do the same to me. Okay. I, I do a history podcast too. It's a, like a little thing of my own. And I, some, I had some couple people write to me, no, 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 this hasn't, that didn't happen that way. I went, thanks. <laughs> Appreciate you. <laughs> so 
carbon capture use and sequestration is just what it says, right? It's, um, it's take carbon capture, right? So we're going to go to a place where we are emitting it. Mm -hmm. And that can be, you know, that can be the tailpipe of your car. That can be, um, a stack at a, at a refinery. Um, it, it could be the, the exhaust on a ship. Um, mm. anything that does that, um, that, that carbon can more than theoretically, it can be captured, but it, it comes down to the process that you use. It's a chemical process on how you're going to effectively isolate the carbon and then put it into something where you can hold on to it. Um, so that's the, the capture piece. Uh, the sequestration piece is where traditionally you're going to go and, and again, use a lot of the technology that, that the oil and gas industry has from drilling. You're going to find the right geology and then you're, you're effectively going to pump that carbon into the earth and then you're going to sit on it. So this effectively makes you more efficient. It keeps you from losing the carbon that you're losing because you're, you, I mean, obviously, you, you know, when I talked to David about the EFRAG, I mean, you're, instead of blowing off the flares, mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, you're, you're no longer doing that. So you're becoming more effective. You're becoming more environmentally friendly. And it sounds like this would be, if it's, if it turns out to be, a, you know, a, a project that grows, this would be a really great thing for the feather in the cap of the oil and gas industry. Well, we, we already do it in, at some level, mm -hmm. right? I mean, Exxon announced, and, and I'm, I'm terrible about dates in the past, but I'm going to throw out there four to six months ago, they announced, I believe it was a $10 billion uh, investment um, in a direct air capture, uh, carbon capture program. And I think the idea was to generate support for it, bring along partners and, and then work on how to deploy it. Right. So I, there's certainly a, an appetite for it right now. It, it comes down to economy. I mean, it, it's, it's very expensive to do that. Yeah. There's and some so, fun money in this, isn't it? I've seen some, there's, there's a lot of information on that. Yeah. But it, you know, again, you, you, you've mentioned technology several times, right? And, and the truth of the matter is, is carbon capture the right thing? It's one of the things, yeah. but you know, being more efficient, you know, if you think about carbon capture or sorry, carbon dioxide is, is released because we have incomplete burning or, or only partial burning, you know, working on how we burn most effectively, most efficiently, uh, that reduces, um, carbon dioxide. Yeah. Uh, we, we actually offer a technology that, um, again, small, small stuff, right. But we offer a technology that helps, helps reduce the emissions associated with all of the hydraulic power unit operations on a rig. Um, and, and we offer that today, right? Yeah. And it's, it's quantifiable, it's measurable, um, but it's, it's small, but, but those small steps, particularly gains in efficiency. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've seen estimates and, and these are the ones that I tend to think are accurate, right? But when we think about how do we do this, how do we, how do we reduce carbon emissions as a whole? Efficiency gains has got to be a third of it. Yeah. If it's not, we're, we're missing an opportunity. Yeah. I think where you, where people sit on that is whether or not, essentially two different types of people. There's people who believe in humanity and people that don't. <laughs> I'm one of those ones that thinks, yeah, we'll figure this out because the more, the more it becomes nece necessary, uh, yeah, the money's there. When things are necessary, there's going to be money behind it, and that's what's going to drive it, and that's what capitalism is, right? It's supposed to be 
you know, you get a demand for something, somebody's got to find a way. And the more people in the world that have benefited from cheap energy and have more people that have, instead of working all day and in the fields and they're able to go to school and learn, the more brains we have working on these problems. So oil and gas kind of fixes itself. Because, I mean, I, I know that's pie-in-the-sky thinking, but that's really how I think. I think, you know, no, all, not there, there's a lot of people out there that have, aren't, weren't contributing, you know, because they, they didn't have the time in the day. And, you know, uh, if, you, if you go back and look at all of our um, thinkers in our early times of a country, they were all rich because they had only rich people had the time to study. <laughs> and and, and, and that's, the, that's the same thing now. We're rich. Everybody here in the United States is rich compared to these people. So you're you're rich. You have the time. So, uh, you know, I, I think, like you said, um, you know, to wrap it up a little bit, renewables, I guess the solution to all of our problems is a, is a good mix of everything, right? Would you agree with that? The solution to our problems is is more energy. Yeah. And and it's it's about changing the energy mix okay. in a way that makes sense. Yeah. Now, now saying all that, there's – there's a another question which I'll we don't need to go down this rabbit hole, but just something to for you and listeners to think about mm-hmm. is, you know, the the right energy solutions have to be predicated on how the energy will be delivered. Mm-hmm. And so the the question to ask ourselves because we we hear all these things about you know build back better and the infrastructure bill and you know our infrastructure is falling apart and this sort of thing, um, going forward. Will our grids be more connected or less connected? Because until you answer that question, you're not going to have the optimal energy mix to provide the energy that's needed when it's needed. So you're saying that it needs to be more connected to be optimal? I'm I'm actually not saying that. Oh, okay. I'm just saying that until we answer that question – we can't really make the best energy decisions. But don't we keep the grid disconnected for security reasons? Like, isn't that a national security? Well, but when I say, well, when we think about the grid national security, there's that's a whole different podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, what I'm saying, you know, is but, because they, can, they can't shut down the whole country at once, right? Uh, no, no, they yeah. can't. But, but even then, right, so you've got – there are grid operators, right? Think, mm-hmm. think of ERCOT, right? Mm-hmm. ERCOT's its own thing, but then within spheres of where or the sphere of where ERCOT operates, there are also little co-ops that operate, right? And so they are effectively, depending on how much generation capacity they have, they may be self-sustaining. They may not need help unless they need help. And and so until we can say as a nation our, our grid is going to be more connected or less connected, we we struggle to answer the question of what's the right thing. I'll give you an example, right? When we think about nuclear, mm-hmm. you know, if, if we were to take modern nuclear technology and, and, and build whatever, five of those plants per state. Now that that's not going to provide near enough energy for the entire state, depending on the state, but let's just say it's five per state for, for ease of belief, right? Then, then a, a statewide grid could probably be, pretty easily supported. And if you were as a state producing more than you needed, you could export that to another state. Um, but if, if we're not able to do that on a, on a federal level or on a state level, 
let's say that a municipality wanted to. So if a municipality said that we're going to provide our own energy and, and we have, they have the authority to do that, then, then they could go and put in whatever their power source was, nuclear or otherwise, right? Mm-hmm. They could go for a, a small modular reactor and power their municipality and then export that energy. But until we know, not, not necessarily know, but until we've decided on, do we think it's going to be more connected or less connected? We may or may not be making the right decisions on what, particularly from a baseload standpoint, what baseload energy we're focused on. So it's tough to make a real hard-nosed long-term decision or, or focus in on one of them without without the grid knowledge or know where we're going with the grid. I, I, like I told you, I've only been in this this role for 10 months or so. Mm-hmm. Um, I am still learning every day, <laughs> you know, as a, as a career a oil and it. gas guy. I mean, it doesn't matter how smart you are. You, there's so much to this, and there's so much out there, you know. And, and I, I think people would be shocked to you – know, I think a lot of people outside of Texas, a lot a lot of people outside of – that aren't connected to this industry, that, that an oil field service company is actually out here leading – the way in some of these uh, renewable energies. And, you know, if you're, if you're in the oil and gas industry, it makes perfect sense. Like you said, we're already set up to do some of this stuff. We're already made to do this. So uh, I think it's very interesting, you know, and to learn about what NOV is doing. And, um, you know, I guess some of the ones I didn't even come here prepared to talk about the hydrogen and the carbon capture. So that's fantastic stuff. But uh, Ed, I I really appreciate you, um, your thoughts on this, uh, your your information about it, what's going on, and uh, your opinions on things. That's that's interesting. This is probably the first conversation I've had where we've actually went off of just you know, I guess went into a little bit of theory, right, or a little bit of uh, you know theory about what the future could hold. But but thank you very much for the information on the different renewables that NOV is doing and, and and some of the things that uh, you believe will, will, will might happen in the future and might not. But but thank you very much uh, for coming on and. I hope our listeners enjoy what you had to say because it was very informative. Well, Jeff, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's an honor to be here. And if um, if you ever want to talk in the future, I'd love to, man. Oh, I'm definitely – it'll be offline, uh, but I'll definitely be hitting you up when I come across something. If I read something, it's like I'm going to ask him about that and see where they're at with that. But thank you again, sir, and uh, have a great day. You too. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show and accept the mission. Please subscribe to the Mission Zero podcast on your preferred streaming service and be sure to give us a five-star review.